Pride Institute is an LGBTQ-specific treatment center for substance use disorder and addiction. Pride was first opened in 1986 as a direct response to the HIV-AIDS pandemic. We provide care to adults 18-plus in residential and outpatient settings. I'm Luke. And I'm Kaylee. And together, we are the co-hosts of the Proud Voices podcast for Pride Institute. Hey everyone, we are here today with Trevor and or Barb is their drag persona. So welcome, thanks for joining us today. Hi. <laughs> and I feel like this is going to be a really fun one. Yeah, we're going to have so, so much fun. Buckle up um, and we'll start like we always do. Trevor, how did you find yourself at Pride's Doors? Oh, I did hear that question in the other one, mm-hmm. um, which is funny. I was thinking about it this morning because I, I don't think I've told my story since probably my 30 days. And I got kind of roped into that weirdly. But anyway, uh, so how did I end up at Pride? I probably um, knew I wanted to come to Pride two years before I did come to Pride. Mm. And I had known a bunch of people and a bunch of my friends had already either been through the doors or were sober from something else. So it wasn't new to me. Uh, and I and I watched, listen, I watched a lot of Oprah in my day. So I knew like, you know, I needed probably some therapy behind it. I needed whatever. I knew I needed inpatient. Uh, so yeah, it was about two years. And then finally, uh, I was, you know, working in a salon in New York City, drinking all night, cocaine all night, working all day, cocaine during the day. And people were starting to catch on. And not that I was really, I'm an open book, so it's not like I was really hiding anything, but now people were starting to say that I had a negative attitude. And that was not cute to me. So, you know, of course I thought, well, I'll fix it on my own, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it was like Drag Race, and it was, I said, okay, I'm gonna go out, I'm gonna have one beer, and then I'm gonna go home. I think I got home at like 8.30 the next morning. Oh gosh. Uh, And I couldn't go to work. And my boss had already just confronted me. So I was like, I better take the week off because I got to now figure this out, right? Because now this is, now she's going to catch on, right? Mm -hmm. So I took the week off. I went to a friend's house and we called Pride and got me in and found the money. And yeah, I was excited and nervous. So a couple of questions. So you mentioned salon. So are we talking hair? What are we talking hair? Okay, so hairstylist by trade. Yes, which, you know, and obviously you guys know Pride. It's like Mm -hmm. hairstyling, flight attendants uh, (laughs) is a big option, right? Uh, Oh my God, yeah. So, you know. cannot confirm or deny. Yeah, right. But you, you know, you go through, I think when you're in that kind of a profession, it's just, you know, it's a cash business. It's this, it's that. Well, maybe not flight attendants. Maybe they're a cash business. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, yeah. So, yeah, it just was, it was fun. It was social for me. Yeah. So, yeah, anyway. And then you brought up Drag Race. And so my quarantine hobby this year was, I had never seen it. And then I watched it. 20 seasons of it because there's a million seasons. Oh, so I was like, season, they're up to 20. So what season was this? When you had your Oh, uh, my gosh. Well, it was uh, seven years ago. I just hit seven years. So. Okay. I don't know. Is I was that, drunk. I know. Who do I know? Like, I think that would have been like Jinx Monsoon. Sharon probably. Yeah. Probably. Okay. Yeah. That, uh, Bianca? It would have had to been later. Yeah. It would have had to been after after Sharon because I know I was still drinking after her. She had won. Because mm-hmm. I'd seen her at the bar. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's how I, yeah. So it had to be after her. What's okay. she, what was she, five? Anyway, probably yeah, Bianca. Yeah. Yeah, I just had to ask because I'm like, oh my gosh, she brought up Drag Race, and that's my recent. Oh my gosh! Yeah, so So that was that. 
And you, so you were in New York and then you came here? Yep. So I grew up here and then I uh, uh, went to New York after high school and I did that for one year, then back here, got my hair license. I was here for two years, then back to New York for 10 years and then back here like six years ago. And so did you ago. stay in Minnesota after treatment? I uh, I had to go back. My intent was to go back mm -hmm. to New York. And so I went back to New York. But now, mind you, my mom was also like terminally sick at this point, mm -hmm. And I had known that. So it was also kind of a test ground to go back and see if I liked it there. And then I had to come back for like the last two months of my mom, right? Mm -hmm. So I said, I'm going to use these two months to see if I feel good here or in New York. And it just here felt better. Um, and I think New York was probably just too fast for me at that time. I needed calm. I needed, you know, to get back to my life, my normal life. And then, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. But now, listen, who knows? That is really interesting when you talk about like jobs where you like get your money the minute like you're working. Like I used to be a server and bartender mm -hmm. and when I was in college and that was very much the lifestyle that me and my friends were living where we would yeah. make our money and then we would go to a bar we would go and just spend everything we just made right and it's like crap rent is due in two weeks yeah yeah, yeah. because you think it's just five dollars here or ten dollars or blah like and you can't see if nothing comes up in your bank account no, right yeah. oh my gosh and then all of a sudden <laughs> the negative draft starts and then you go Ooh, yeah mm -hmm. yeah so then once you walk through the door, obviously, sometimes for people, it's really, really traumatic. Like the minute it, it's not uncommon for people to walk through pride. And then within like two days, like call their parents every yeah. single day. Like, get me out of here. Yeah. I don't want to be here. What was your experience like? Um, it was not that because I also came here willingly. Right. Mm -hmm. So I watched Oprah and I knew like mine wasn't I don't want to say mine, like just mine singular. I personally think that alcohol isn't like, a oh, I can't contain myself around it. Right, I knew I had to get my head right. So I knew there was some kind of a backstory. So to be honest with you, I was like, I'm gonna go to Pride. They're gonna tell me I must have been molested. I've repressed it, because I've seen that story on Oprah. <laughs> uh -huh. And then, you know, whatever, I'll stop drinking and my life will be so great once we've uncovered all these things. Mm -hmm. uh, I still to this day, I don't believe I was molested. So mm -hmm. that's uh, good. Um, and I think for me, it just was, and I, and I think this is true of a lot of people in Minnesota, we just really weren't taught feelings. Yeah. We weren't taught how to express them. So I think for, for me coming into this, it was already that. However, it, it's terrifying because even though you don't love your drinking life, I knew that life. I knew what I was gonna feel like when I woke up. I knew what I was gonna feel like midday. I, you know what I mean? That was a cycle. And so then when I came here, there was three, I had three rules for coming. And I'd known other sober people. So I said, number one, if I become like so into God that I can't, you know, do anything else in life, then I don't want to do that. If I'm not funny still, then I, then I don't want to be sober. Um, uh, uh, um, and if I, if I was one of those people that I could never be around alcohol again in my life, then I was just going to keep drinking. Then it wasn't worth it to me. And with that said, I will say, um, you know, I believe in obviously higher power, spiritual being, just the whole God part of it, the whole um, organized religion part of it. I think I just didn't want to be a part of. So I could be spiritual. I could do all that. That would be fine. Um, yeah. And also I think, and also to be around alcohol certainly wasn't right away. You know, it's a thing that you build up to. I had, you know, my escape routes. I had all my tools in my belt that if I was gonna go and be around it in the beginning, especially, then, you know, I had my tools. 
And if it felt gross, I got out of there. Um, and I think I just really enjoyed my life so much more. And that's what kept me going. You know what I mean? Yeah. And even now, seven years later, I look and I go, yeah, I could have a drink. And then I lose everything I have now. And that is not worth it. Right. And so I just don't want to. There's no point in it. Yeah. Anyway, so that was a long. <laughs> no, that's amazing. Do you think you started using to deal with those feelings that you were never taught how to feel? Yes. So I think that my, and I know this now looking back, you know, obviously when you're in the midst of it. Hindsight 2020. Oh yeah. But now looking back, I know exactly because I wasn't, I wasn't, um, I wasn't the person that in my mind, right? I didn't have a needle in my arm in some crack den. I yeah. didn't, I was still going to work. I was still, you know, I mean, I think people and my clients knew that I went out a lot, but I was single. I was social. I was, and when I drank, I wasn't the person that was like, bleh, all over the place. Like I kept composure and I, and I drank a lot. Don't get me wrong, mm -hmm. but I just held it because now looking back, it was anxiety, right? Like, so I would go out into public and I would be so anxious that, you know, you have a drink, I have something in my hand or, or smoking or whatever it is. Right. So you have these things in your blah, blah, blah. And then when you're left without them, right, then you're just bare face to the, to the people. I don't know. Did that answer the question? That makes so much sense because we talk about that all the time where I think for me, my big thing was, well, that person's not an addict or they don't have a problem because they don't drink every day. Yeah. And it really has nothing to do with how often you use and everything to do with yes. how you use it. Yes. Right? Yeah. And so many people use drugs or alcohol or whatever for the very same reason of social mm -hmm. anxiety. And I will say like, and I don't know if you can say this or not, but I, I truly do think there is a place for drugs, alcohol, all these things in the world. There is a place for them, mm -hmm. right? And my only thing is like, of course, because I'll tell my story to anybody, but you know, it makes other people then question what they do. And so then they get that weird thing. And I always go like, it's, it's just if your life becomes unmanageable. Can you still manage your life like that? Then drink all day, every day, I don't care. But if you're unhappy, you can't manage your life, then, then that's when it becomes the problem, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so that's always what I tell people, like if you wanna drink all day, every day, go ahead. If you're happy, if you're, you know, healthy, and I mean, you know, truly happy, right? Authentically happy. Uh, but yeah, I just, um, you know, now I work in the in the bar industry a lot, and, and, and it's around it. And I also feel like I can now look at it from the outside and go, oh, I realize these aren't derelict people, right? These aren't, you know, bottom of the barrel and no block. These are people who have been hurt or broken or something and have no no idea even how to ask for the tools for it, right? right? So that's always like, I feel like what I do, like I'll share it to everybody because I remember when I got sober and I go, how oh, come nobody told me about this? Mm -hmm. Had I known there was a different set of rules to live by, okay, great, then I'll do that if that's all it takes. Mm -hmm. um, and I think people just don't know the rules, right? Right. Totally. And it's terrifying, right? Because yeah. you also think like, Oh God, now I'm going to be stuck in some stuffy church basement <laughs> with all these old men yeah. and blah, like, right. That's your, that's your thing of it. Right. So anyway, I don't know. That's interesting <laughs> you bring that up. Cause I remember I had very limited um, experience with like what a treatment center looked like until I started working at one. And yeah. I remember thinking it was synonymous with like a jail. And so I was like, oh my gosh, what's it going to be like? And then I walk through Pride and someone's playing the piano from the Taylor Swift song. There's a waterfall. Songbook, there's a waterfall. <laughs> People making fun of my shoes. Like it was like, yeah, it was entirely. I will say that. Now. And like my experience speaking to that, like, 
you know, I, when I got in here, uh, into Pride, and then I'll, all of a sudden, you know, you get in and you go, oh, these are people with careers. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are not dumb people. These are like people that just don't have the skills, right? Or don't, we didn't have uh, the tools that we needed at that time. And that's when I looked around. And then you become like this, like gang, right? That you're like, okay, now we're going to go fight the world. Now we're sober. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, and then there's the drop off after when you realize not everybody stays sober. And that was a hard lesson for me to learn. So, yeah. Well, and it goes to show too, like never judge a book by its cover. Because to your point, I remember growing up and thinking addicts were just people who didn't know when to say when. Yeah. And it's only until you start to talk to someone where you realize that that's actually not the case at all. And mm-hmm. that most people actually just use it as a way of self-medicine. Mm-hmm. And so in conjunction, I identify as a gay male. And like, it's the same exact thing of people thinking they know my lifestyle because of how I identify. Yeah. And it's just, it's eye-opening to hear you say that. Yeah. And also to that point, like I was the person that, you know, that what's that intervention show? Yeah. Oh my God. I was the person that would watch that show by myself and I was drinking wine at home alone because that was acceptable. Mm -hmm. Right. So I would drink and I'm talking the big bottle. And inevitably it would spill, it would whatever. But I remember thinking, watching that show going, oh my God, these people should really get it together. (laughs) Right? Like as I'm wasted on the couch, like spilling wine, but for somehow I wasn't, I was still going to work. I wasn't, you know, passing out, which I was, but you know, I mean, it just, and now I can, I don't watch it that much, but when I watch it now, you kind of go back to like, oh, where's the point in the story where you go, that's where she got broken or whatever right and, and it's environment and nobody's perfect and mm-hmm. so i think the the goal is to sort of learn the tools to deal with life because life's still gonna go on right it's still gonna happen the way it was the people your friends your family are all still gonna be the same there mm-hmm. it's just how you want to interact with them now in your yeah. life right totally. well obviously you're an entertainer um oh, yeah. so very entertaining um and you go by barb is your yeah your drink yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Awesome. oh gosh now all the illusions are out yeah, everyone knows. but yeah everybody knows. knows um so i'm curious how do you work in the bar scene as a drag queen and stay sober well i will tell you i had dabbled in drag prior not really performing i performed a little bit but um but it was always uh i was always shit. like i wasn't a performer i could look pretty right and, and that was fine, but I was so nervous. So like, don't make me perform. Don't make me get up in front of people. Don't make, I don't want to talk about me. Just don't, you know, don't look at me. Don't do any of that. Um, and so, you know, I would just dabble. All my friends were performers, like, but paid performers, right? And then here I was, do, do, do. So then, uh, then when I got sober, still, it was kind of the same, right? And I had done a few things sober because I was the one that, you know, let's get wasted and then dance around in a dress, right? So now I, uh, so then when I got sober, then you start to, you know, you start to do all that work on yourself, right? And you get inside. So I was never this person drinking. Drinking, I was so sheltered at the end of the bar, just like drinking, just like watching everybody analyzing. And then as I got like kind of stronger and stronger in my sobriety, and I was like, oh, this is the person I'm supposed to be. This is what it is. You know, and I was in therapy, so we're working through all of that stuff. And um, so I, I wouldn't be where I am now without being sober. And not like in that way of like, oh, God, sobriety changed my life. True, yes. But I think it's just, if you if you really sit down and you do the work, you just get to be authentically you, and that's what people are attracted to. 
That's why I'm popular. That's why I get the jobs that I get because I'm just me. You get me this way, you get me this way in a dress also. Mm -hmm. uh, and so working in the bar now becomes, I kind of look at it more like a, I get that. I get that life. I get those people. I get that mentality. I get where they are in the process of it all. Um, yeah, so I, I think it's more of like that. I feel like it's more of like a, if I get it there and I share, I'm not trying to get everybody to stop drinking, right? But if I, if I, if I tell enough people or if enough people find out and realize like it's not, you know, old men in a church. I mean, there is some of that, right? But, you know, it's not old men in a church basement. It's not, oh, God, my life is now no longer fun anymore. It's not, you know. Uh, and so I think if they see that and they are struggling, then it opens that doorway to say, hey, what do you do? How did you do it? Blah, blah, blah. And I've, I've talked to people and I've watched them get sober and then I've watched them relapse, right? And I think their first reaction is to then go like, oh, God. Listen, it's a... Uh, I always just say, like, are you happy? If you, are you happy drinking? Then drink. If you're not happy drinking, don't drink. You know, I mean, that's a very simple, obviously. Answer, right. right. But yeah. yeah. I think that's kind of incredible. And I think that goes to show how much willpower you have. Because I know a lot of drag queens in, in, in that field specifically. And as a self-obsessed person who watched many seasons of it this year, <laughs> I've heard a lot of drag queens have actually now become sober because of the lifestyle of just feeling like you need to be that, like, center of attention, that party goer, that, like constant up person. Um, do, have you experienced that at all? Meaning like you just have to be the center of attention. You have to be the crazy one. All's on, all eyes on you. You have party to girl. lead the party. Uh, did I have it drinking? No. Oh. No, because I was so anxious, like so in my head mm -hmm. that I think like, um, and now I think being sober and seeing that in other performers, right? Yeah. And also knowing, you know, that's terrifying. It is terrifying to have to get up in front of all these people in high heels, dance around and blah. I mean, it's hard. It's hard work and it is draining. And if you have, if you don't have that stability of, you know, mental health, therapy, medication, whatever, whatever the concoction you do is, what are you left with? You have to numb it somehow, right? And so it's going to be that or sex or, you know, anything, smoking. But yeah, I feel like it's, and I think for me also, like being sober now too, like I, I don't crave, I don't crave the attention that way. You know what I mean? I crave the attention now because I feel like the more attention I can get, the more people I can see and talk to and real and, and start to f see these queer kids and go like, uh, just kidding. You're not broken. We're all the same. I promise you at 40 and now being sober and like living in New York and living here, like everybody is walking around terrified, mm -hmm. terrified. And so if I can kind of come in and go like, listen, do you like that guy? Go talk to him. He's just as scared as you are. And making connections that way mm -hmm. and building community, that's that's more of that versus, I don't need you to like my stuff. I don't need you to know if I'm, you know, eating at a diner or whatever. Like, I just, I don't need that kind, I guess. Right. Um, but I certainly can see where that comes from in those, right? And that's that almost gets me a little bit sad because I go, if you knew how good you were without all the other bullshit stuff, mm -hmm. right? Without all the other stuff, they can edit that up. Uh, <laughs> you know, without all the other stuff, like, you're just good. Mm -hmm. Just be that. It's easy for me to say that being this far in my journey because I've done 
everything under the sun that you can think of because I find it fascinating. Uh, and so just to see these kind of people in their lives. And, and now I've done it long enough where I get to see the uh, progression of it. And I get to see some people excel. And, you know, I've seen some people die. Mm -hmm. And that's the sad truth of it, right? But, um, you know, we'll keep out there. Keep on keeping on dancing yeah. in the dress, I guess. Can you explain the difference? Because I think for a lot of people who aren't well versed in the LGBTQIA community, they consider drag queens to be a part of the transgender umbrella. Oh, and really? So I, would you just want to give us your definition of what drag means to you? Sure. As far as gender. Um, well, and here, and let's speak about that for a second is like, I feel like we also have gotten into this point, right? Where we've now got all these genders and everybody has uh, their own flag and their own thing, which great. I just hope that at the end of the day, like we're not getting focused on what you're calling me and we're getting focused on just how are you treating me as a person? What is your intent towards me, right? Like, mm -hmm. I don't care. I really, when people ask like, what are my pronouns? What am I, whatever? I, I really don't care. Mm -hmm. You can call me a girl, a boy, a boy. it does not matter to me. Mm -hmm. As long as you're coming at me respectfully, nicely, you know, whatever, right? And at the same time, I also will say I didn't, struggle as hard, I think, with my gender identity. So I can't really speak to that also, right? Yep. To be fair. Uh, but so with drag, drag is, um, to me, I really think anybody can be in drag, right? It's just um, like an overexpression of you or your feelings or character that you've uh, created or things like that. But I don't think there's a, you know, drag queen is just the old term, right? Yeah. I usually say like a drag performer now just because, you know, you can be anything and be in drag. A drag king. Um, yes. Now, with that being said, I think there's also a line to be drawn of. I think there's a certain group of people that are in it because this is what they love. This is their passion. This is their, you know, maybe not life, but it's certainly a big part of it. And then I think there's some that see the popularity of drag race and go, oh, I could be that. And that's also sad in a way because I think then they don't get the recognition they're looking for. And so then they get defensive instead of just saying like, well, if this really is my dream, then what do I need? Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's it's easy at 40 now to like look back and go like, oh, my God, you're just struggling to see where you fit in the world, in life. And, you know, these people will pick the next thing and, you know, they're people, just trying to find their space. Right. And even like, you know, the people that will come in and out of sobriety or in and out of rooms like I, I'm not going to say whether they have issues or not, but I think at, on some level, everybody just wants to belong, right? They just want to belong. And if that's it, fine, I'll be sober if that group will take me. Fine, I'll be a drag queen. Will you guys accept me? Like, who's going to accept me versus what's truly coming from me, right? What's my authentic self? And then what, you know, and then that's going to attract all the people that are the same as you. Yeah, that was a long, that was kind of open. Just be you. Yeah. Well, and, that's and, it's, and it's easy to say that now after going through therapy, after going through uh, rehab, after going through self-help books, self-help seminars, self-help uh, documentaries. Like, I mean, I've looked into it and looked into it because I just find it so fascinating, right? Because we're, it's really all the same. And that's, you know, I went into like the bar business with that fear of like, here's these very attractive guys. They're not going to be into me. And then you see this group of people who are, you know, the pups or, or leather or whatever. And you just go, oh my God, each group of those people are all dealing with the same amount of anxiety, the same amount of pain, the same amount of fear. But that's why they found their 
home or that's where they found their relief, whether, you know, it's sex or whatever, whatever we want to do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, at the end of the day, though, they're all still walking around terrified. It's just a different costume. Exactly. And that's like the one message that I'm like, if you all could just realize, and I still have fear. So it's easy for me to say this and like, but I still get scared. I still am not going to go talk to some, you know, any man I want to, right? Like that happens. I think the difference now in sobriety and, and doing the work is now you just go, oh, it's not so um, dramatic anymore. Right? So before it was like, I can't talk to that guy. I'm not going to be able to do it. And now I just go like, Ooh, I don't know if I can. Okay, hi. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it, the, the time frame is narrowed down. doesn't mean it's gone. Yeah. I still am scared, right? But Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Because I think especially in this population that Pride serves LGBTQ community, Alan Downs wrote The Velvet Cage, and he wrote about... I haven't read that yet, but I heard it's so good. Yeah, and he writes about the different ways that we try to basically exceed so that we can get that validation that we missed from when we were in the closet. Yeah. And so that could be success. That could be through, you know, compiling a number of sexual partners and, and paying attention to your looks and, and whatever. And so I think... To your point about, you know, the uptick in drag performers and in that community, yeah. it, it does seem to be really prevalent. Yeah. And I think it's, um, oh my God, I just had such a good point too. <laughs> God, it's going to be good. Anyway, I don't know. Just something. Yeah. Uh, Velvet Rage. Mm-hmm. Hang on. Oh, that's what I was going to say. Yes. So um, it's, it's that, like, and I think going through obviously the last four years, everything of that, like I've you know, we've all been in our homes, like doing hopefully self, you know, work and whatever. Um, But that's where like this opened up a whole new thing for me of like, you know, as queer people, we live in the world and we sort of had to live in it just like the way it was. So where I think we had to hear from our teachers, our family, our friends, television, politicians, you name it, we heard how gross homosexuality was. I mean, even still now, they're debating whether transgender people can, you know, have jobs or be in the military. You know, like, I guess I I, I look at that and I go, okay, so now here we all are, right, as adults, and the people before us, and now the people after us also still, you're lucky I'm still alive. Mm. Like, and not to be dramatic about it, but I mean, essentially, if you kind of equate it to like taking a child, right? Like a baby and just battering it over and over from every direction. Like, how do you expect people to be successful now, right? Like, and so I think that's the other part of it too, of like, now I feel like going into like that bar scene or whatever and people that I know are struggling with addiction that... You, you can see them where they are and you go, oh my gosh. But, you know, that's a lofty concept for just everybody to get, right? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, we all just lived our lives. It's normal to us because that's what we live. But, you know, then you talk to somebody else who, not saying that people don't get bullied or harassed, but you know what I'm saying. Like, yeah. they get it from one bully at school or one blah. They don't get it from television, radio, politicians, like the people that are supposed to protect you, love you, like... That's insane, right? That's insane. And if it was anything else, any other kind of abuse or whatever, it would be absurd, unheard of. Yeah. But, you know, that's the way the world is, right? And so we're supposed to accept that, but I don't anymore. 
totally. I think that's my <laughs> favorite thing about the queer community is that we're so resilient and we turn everything into a joke because we kind of have to make light yeah. of the heavy, heavy situations that yeah. have been put on us. And so I think, yeah, to, to your point, um, yeah. our, our community just full of glitter and rainbows because there's no other option. Yes. And with that also being said, I think there's also that underbelly. And I think because there's so much hurt and so much pain, I think what you find on Facebook and other places, um, and maybe I speak more specifically to the drag community because I know more of that, but um, we're so willing to just eat our own people. And, and I kind of equate it to almost like when you go into rehab, right? And you're like fresh off drugs and alcohol and your nerves are on fire. And that's what's happening, right? We're all so overstimulated by everything that's going on that everybody's nerves are on fire. And the, the easiest person to take it out on, right, is you, because you're next to me, you're by me, you're close to me. So I'll find something wrong in you versus saying, oh my God, this world is crazy. We've got to stick together and fight those people, or we've got to stick together and make change together. It's easier just to take your anger out on somebody else that's next to you and so then we eat our own and well and that's so funny that you bring that up too because i think that you know we hurt the people we love the most yeah right yeah the tragic and it's and that's easier Mm -hmm. i mean that's a much it's much easier to do that than to say i was wrong Mm -hmm. i i'm sorry i didn't mean to do that i didn't mean to hurt you that's that's not easy to do at the same time like i think that's the other goal of like trying to make that kind of normal Right. Make it normal to say I love you or you look pretty or, you know, just compliments, things like validating people like I don't even care if you don't even mean it. Just pretend to be genuine to me. If that's all you can muster out of your mouth, get that out then and then shut up. No. Uh. (laughs) No, really. Well, on that note, Trevor, thank you so much for being thank here. Thank you. This is so fun. Trevor slash Preacher Barb. Preacher Barb. My Oprah moment. Don't get me on my Oprah. <laughs> oh, God. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Proud Voices. You can find us where you find all your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to follow and subscribe. And we'll see you next time.